We're a good third of the way through the Bible here. We're going to be on it another year and a quarter or so to finish up. Um, but we have an interesting milestone today. Um, last week we did the book of Ezra. Now we're doing most of Nehemiah. This is the last history book in terms of years in the Old Testament chronology. I mean, next week we'll be doing the rest of Nehemiah and Esther. Esther is also history. But historically, Esther happened before Nehemiah. So, whatever you read in Nehemiah, that's the last history you're going to get until the time of Jesus. Now, there's one, at least one book written after this, which is uh, Malachi. So, you know, you could read Malachi and get a little bit of hint, but that's a, uh, a minor prophet. That's not a history book. Um, and then there's a couple of historical books that are in the Catholic Bible, not in our Bible, the books of Maccabees, which tell some things that happened a hundred years or so later after um, Nehemiah. But this is the last one in our Bible. This is this is it. The next next thing you know, you're in Matthew if you want history. <clears throat> All right. Um, how come I've got both Ezra and Nehemiah on the same slide? <laughs> All right. Uh, originally, this was one book in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, this was all one book. Does anyone remember? This is for extra credit. Does anyone remember when it got first split into two books? Right answer, wrong question. That that was when Samuel got split into First and Second Samuel. It's when Kings got split. Is when Chronicles got split. But the Septuagint did not split Ezra and Nehemiah. That was much later. It was 200 years after Christ. Uh, Origen, a preacher in Alexandria, was the first to do that. And it's not hard to figure out why, because when you start with the book of Nehemiah, you read the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. I mean, it just sounds like a separate book. Um, though, as you go through, you might notice some similarities to Ezra. For example, lots of lists of names and numbers. <laughs> what other book has that in common? Common. Ezra and Chronicles, yeah. And I think it's likely they were all written by the same person or at least put together by the same person. Now, I think this part of the original book of Ezra, the, the Nehemiah part, was was clearly written by Nehemiah. But whoever put the whole book together just grabbed that and put it in his book. <laughs> so... <clears throat> now... In Ezra, what was one of the major themes in Ezra? Well, we had the building of the temple, a major event, but there's something behind this that's not on the outline. Something behind this that seems to pop up several times in Ezra, and I think we're going to see it in Nehemiah as well. And that was that God... In Ezra, we found several times God had turned the king's heart. We saw this, this huge opposition to the building of the temple first and then later on the building of the walls. And several times it said, you know, God changed the king's heart. And so he said, yeah, go ahead and do that. Now, we have a little bit of that in Nehemiah. I mean, we do have 
Nehemiah's request to the king and, and the king grants it. But more than that, we have over and over in Nehemiah mention of God, what God is doing. And, and I mean, the, the chapter starts with a prayer of Nehemiah to God. And it's very obvious throughout the book that Nehemiah sees God as behind all of this. Now, of course, we see Nehemiah as being just an amazing guy. Uh, but uh, if you ask Nehemiah about it, he would say God is the one that's doing this work. And and so again, the, the two the two go together as they originally were together in in, in showing that if if you could if you look at the themes of the overall Ezra Nehemiah uh, book, the theme is of a very small, weak people. Very few people went back to Jerusalem after the the. Um, the captivity, and they were just so small a number, geographically to a very small area, um, and you had this powerful empire that ruled everything. But God protected them, and and time and time again, God uh, came through for them. But then you have this subtopic where they didn't always come through for God, and and. And in Ezra, what was the major illustration of that? Yeah, marrying the people of the land instead of marrying their own, uh, you know, marrying people who were Jews. And and they had to deal with that in the last chapter of Ezra. They have to deal that with that again in Nehemiah, and and it's only like twenty years later when when this is coming up again. Um, now, last time we, we looked at this chart that gives the uh, chronology of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we saw that in Ezra, there are two major periods discussed. Uh, the period, in, now the, the original, the original uh, return was under Cyrus. So that's where the book of Ezra starts. But then there's a gap when they quit working on the, the temple because they have opposition. And then there's this short period of time in the reign of Darius the first, um, when it, it's the, the author he said it's a five year period when they, they finish the temple. Then there's a gap of oh something like sixty years, which although it's sort of covered in this in in, in this in these chapters that talk about the opposition of the Samaritans, there's no real historical things happening in that period in Jerusalem. Until you get to the time of Ezra, Ezra, he comes back from Babylonian captivity with a later group of people. So you had you had this original group that came, and then Ezra brought another group to add to the ones that were already there, or their children. Of course, I mean the original ones are probably dead by now, but the children were there, and that covers a period of just one year. And it was in that in that year that they had to deal with the uh, the marriages of the people from from the land. And then Nehemiah comes along a little bit later. Now, both Ezra and Nehemiah are in the reign of Artaxerxes. And I wanted to... Sh- I've, I've got some pictures. Um, these first pictures really should have gone last week. Sorry, I, I didn't find them until this week. And I thought, people would like to see these anyway. <laughs> this is a, a sphinx from the palace of Darius I. He was the king when they finished the temple. And this is in Susa, 
and that's how I found it because Nehemiah was living in Susa. So I was looking up Susa and I found this picture. I thought, oh, well, this is pretty neat. It kind of gives you an idea of um, the grandeur of, of those kings. I mean, they, these kings were kings of of the you know then known world. For the you know from their perspective, that's what they were. Uh, they covered everywhere from Egypt all the way to India. Uh, they they ruled everything, and so. King Darius has this picture of a lion on his. This is on the wall of his palace. Um, the, these are a couple of hunters. The Persians love to hunt, and, and of course they like to hunt fierce animals like lions, and and they, they always like to have pictures of their kings. The Assyrians were that way too. They like to have pictures of their kings in battle with with animals, you know, showing how great they were. Um, all right, now we'll go into Nehemiah here. Though that's that was from last week. But understand, Nehemiah is—he—he's he, right. He's in a palace just like this. It wasn't the same one. It, he, the king he's with is Artaxerxes. That, that, that palace was Darius's palace. And he's you know, eighty, hundred years later, but I'm sure it's still very opulent, <laughs> uh, grandeur, and all that. He's in the living in the same city, Susa. And what was his job? Bear to the king. I mean, so he he's in the palace. Uh, you know, every day he's in the palace, and and getting to see the, um, you know, all the riches and everything, and, and right, you know, with the king. I mean, if, if the king is in the uh, mood to chat, he's chatting with the king. I think the king's not in the mood to chat. I'm sure he knew to keep his mouth shut. Um, but he he was, um, and it was a, it was actually a position of responsibility because. Uh, I, I, my understanding is the cupbearer was also responsible for tasting the wine in case it was poisoned, because that that was one well-known way to knock off a king. Um, so you'd want to have a trustworthy person in that in that uh, position. And it's obvious that the king has respect for him in the story. But that, that's getting a little bit ahead. Um, the story starts. It says in the month Kislev, which was an act. It, it, that's the. It corresponds to our November or December. Um, Though, I don't think looking outside the palace, it would look like our <laughs> November, December looks like outside. This is a pretty hot climate. But the, what happens is that he gets visited by one of his brothers who, who had been off to Judah. Now, I don't know whether Nehemiah had ever been to Judah before this. Because um, he certainly seems to be very surprised to hear what, what Jerusalem looks like. So I, 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 would, I would guess that he's, he has never been there. You know, he was born, born in the captivity, basically, and, and grew up that way. Um, and I'm sure he, you know, he, he no doubt knew that the, you know, a lot of his countrymen had gone back under Cyrus, and then another group, uh, not too long before, you know, a dozen years or so before under Ezra. I'm sure he knew about this. But hey, I mean, he had a job. You can't just, you know, if you're a cupbearer, you can't just walk off the ass and go go to Jerusalem. But he cares about Jerusalem, even though he's never been there. He cares about it, and and when he hears how bad things are, the walls are all down, the gates are burned. I mean, a city in those days that was in that kind of situation uh, is in big trouble. And so, what does he do? As a result, he prays to God, and um, and and apparently goes on. This goes on for a period of months because. In chapter two, it starts in the month Nisan, which is uh, that's actually the first month. That's that's the month that the Passover occurs in. It's um, 
March or April, so it's about three months later from the first one. And I think you've been praying during that time, but we have this summary in, 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 toward the end of chapter 1. Um, he confesses to God. He, he confesses the sins of the people. He, he recognizes that God is right to have done this to the people because he, he realizes that his own people, and he's including himself in this, have, have forsaken God's law. And, but he's asking for God's mercy. And we'll, and we'll see a prayer like this later on in the, in the same book. Um, and he reminds God of the words of, of the, going back to the law of Moses that if you return to me and keep my commandments, then I'll gather you together. And, and he, he's, he's familiar with the fact that that's exactly what God has done, but, you know, Lord, we need more help. And so he ends his prayer by saying, Make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now, who's the man he's talking about? Yeah, he, he, he realizes that he's in a unique position to ask for help from the king. But he doesn't seem like he just brings it up on his own. Three months later, we get in, we're in, um, in chapter 2 and he's before Artaxerxes and that's what Artaxerxes looks like. <laughs> that, was the only, um, that was the only picture I could find that went with Nehemiah. But anyway, now, now you know um, that's the guy that Nehemiah was talking to. Um, bringing the wine in, of course, as, as was his job. And what does the king say? I saw how he Yeah, you know, your, your, your face looks sad, but you're not sick. What's going on? And what's Nehemiah's initial reaction? He says, I was very much afraid. Why do you have to be afraid just because you look sad? Yeah. You, you may remember, and next week we're going to do Esther, but those of you who have read Esther in the past, you may remember that uh, in... In the book of Esther, no one was allowed through the palace gates wearing sackcloth. If you want to, if you want to be sad, stay outside the palace. That was the rule. And, and, and here's this guy that is closest to the king with a cupbearer and he looks sad. I assume that the, the thinking behind this is that if you're getting to see the king, you should just be so happy because there's nobody greater on earth than the king. That should just make you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, you don't have a good attitude toward the king. <laughs> well, this also lets us know that this one prayer we have in chapter 1 was not just a single prayer. That was three months ago. Nehemiah has been thinking about this for three months and this just shows his attitude. I mean, when we hear about something, we hear about something we don't like and, and you know, we pray... And then we go on with our lives. I mean, how often is that? I mean, something that's this far removed. I mean, it's he's never been there. I mean, it's it would take him several months to journey there, um, and yet it hurts him so much that for three months he's praying and he looks sad at the end of the three months, and the king notices this. So um, he answers the king very respectfully. You know that. He's sorry because the the place of his father's tombs lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire. So then the king says, Well, what would you like? Wow, you know, I mean, he had prayed earlier, you know, Lord, you know, grant compassion for this man. The king says, You know, what would you like? What does he do then? Praise again. Praise again. 
A quick prayer. Yeah, this is what um, Pete. Um, what was his last name that did all those sermons on prayer? Peter Wilson. Peter Wilson. Yeah, he he called it an arrow prayer. I don't think he invented it, but I remember he used to talk about that. What? Oh, bullet prayer. Okay, I, I'm I'm earlier, and I'm the days of the Indians before the Cowboys. Um, yeah, arrow prayer. <laughs> You've heard of a flare? I mean, that's a new one on me. Well, obviously, this was one done without moving his lips. I mean, he just said it to God really quick. Um, but it shows his attitude. Um, God is the one who's going to do this. I mean, Nehemiah wants to do everything he can, but it's going to have to come from God. So, praise to God. And, and think about what that tells us today about what God can do. I mean, he's praying to God, now he's going to say something, and then the king's going to say something back. What possible change could a prayer make about that? I mean, doesn't Nehemiah have free will? Can't he say whatever he wants? Doesn't the king have free will? Can't he say whatever he wants? Somehow God is going to do things. He's not violating anybody's free will, and when it's all done, the king's going to say, oh, that was just my choice. But it's going to be just like in Ezra, God changed the king's heart. <laughs> and so, Nehemiah prays, and then, and, I, and my guess is he's thought about this for some time. You know, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, this is chapter 2, verse 7, to the governors beyond the provinces. So, you know, no, I'm, I'm yeah, actually I jumped. Verse 5. He, he asks the king to send him to Judah so he can build it up. And as we learn later in the book, the king actually appoints him to be what? Yeah, the governor. So he gives him an official position, which the position already existed. He just appoints him. I don't know who was the governor before, but Nehemiah goes and now he's the governor for... And I don't know how long, because the king said, well, you know, how long are you going to be? And this, this guy sounds a lot like my boss. I mean... When, whenever my boss says, you know, we want you to write this particular computer program, how long will it take? <laughs> and, you know, the answer I'd like to give is, well, I'll let you know when I'm done. <laughs> so I always want to know how long it's going to take. Well, how would you like to be in Nehemiah's situation? You've never seen the city of Jerusalem. You've never seen the gate. You don't know what, what it's like. How long is it going to take you to build those, those walls back? I mean, it's not like Nehemiah makes a, you know, that his career has been building city walls, but the king wants to know, and he's got to give him an answer, and he better be back by that time, I'm sure. But he's had three months to pray about this and think about it, so he gives, he doesn't say, he doesn't tell us what the answer was, but he gives the king an answer. And um, so then he makes the journey, and check verse 11. He says, I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And so here we see this tiny little area. We've zoomed in on our previous map. And this tiny little area, here, let me go back to that. Okay. Here he was in Susa over here. He has to go up and then go down to, those, to Jerusalem. And so um, here he is. And. Um, some of these other towns are going to, we're going to read about some of these other towns like Jericho and Tekoa and all in, in the book. But, it, it, but the action all takes place in Jerusalem. So he got to Jerusalem and he was there three days. And what did he do then after three days? 
He wants he wants to check out the walls. Why doesn't he do it during the daytime? Because he doesn't want people to see him. Yeah, he doesn't want to tip people off what he's thinking about. Um, he wants to be prepared so that when he tells the people, they're not going to surprise him by saying, "Oh, have you seen the walls? Do you have an idea how bad they are?" He says, "Yeah, I've seen the walls." <laughs> And so in verse 13, he went out at night by which gate? Yeah. And I've got this map. This comes from Baker's Bible Atlas that shows what the city probably looked like in the days of Nehemiah. Now, obviously, we didn't, archaeologists didn't uncover this map. They've uncovered remnants of the walls. And there's some uh, discussion about exactly where the walls went. But uh, probably this is correct. At least, you know, here's the valley gate. He went out. And on his horse, he rides around this way to see this part of the of the walls. Now, I don't. I mean, I don't think he could see the whole whole city in, in that night. But he, he took a couple nights to do it, didn't he? Um, I think he took a couple nights doing this. Um, but he didn't tell anybody. So then, in verse 17, he's ready to reveal what's going to happen. And, so he tells people, do you see the bad situation we're in? The Jerusalem is just in the case burned by fire. And he told them how the king had given him this permission. And so they said, let us arise and build. And they put their hands to the good work. This is great. Unfortunately, they got some enemies, Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite official. Let me back up here. Um, Samaria is north of them. Ammon is east of them. And these these guys have been enemies for a long time. We we saw them quite a lot in the book of Ezra, uh, opposing the building of the temple. And now they can do the same thing with the building of the walls. But what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Or that's an inflammatory charge with the kings they had back then. But Nehemiah had confidence in God. The God of heaven will give us success. And so chapter 3 then tells about the building. And it's, it's an interesting chapter, especially when you have a nice map like this, because um, he goes around the city counterclockwise as he describes what the people did. The first one, um, well, they started in verse 1 with the sheep gate. And who's the one doing this? Who was in charge of building the sheep gate? The high priest and, of course, the priests and all. And this is the sheep gate up, uh, up here. Why was it called the sheep gate? That's right. This is the gate you'd bring the sheep in for the temple. So, very appropriate that the guy who works in the temple and his brethren would be the one in charge of it, the high priest and the, and the priests. And, and it may well be that you have the same thing going around. I don't know, because, I mean, I, most of the, like the, gold, the goldsmiths made repairs. I don't really, really don't know where the goldsmiths lived in the city, but I do know where the temple was and, and the sheep gate, so that would make sense. But now we go counterclockwise, you know, the fish gate uh, and the corner gate, and on down we've already had the valley gate, and then there was towers as well that are that are mentioned as we go around. Um, I just I'm not going to read the, the whole thing, but I'll mention verse five. This is a sort of. It sticks out even though Nehemiah doesn't make a big deal about it. Moreover, next to him, the Tekoites, these were people from the town of Tekoa, they made repairs. But their nobles did not support the work of their masters. 
<laughs> What's that all about? Well, not everybody's on board with this. You know, the people are excited, but there's some of these people that, that their attitude is, you know, I, I don't have any need to help. And, and, I, and that same thing goes on today. I mean, a church will decide to do a work and, and they'll get everyone excited about it, but there'll, there'll be somebody that will just say, I don't have to come. Okay, well, we'll just put that down in the book of Nehemiah for you then. <laughs> and people for the next several thousand years can read about how you said, I don't need to come. <laughs> and Nehemiah doesn't do anything more than that. He doesn't say, you know, may the Lord remember this again. Hey, he just mentions it. It just goes on. And I'm thinking, man, I'd hate to be in a book like that. <laughs> um, so then he goes on around and they, they, they keep going around. Um, here's a, this is interesting in verse 12 that Shalom, uh, he and his daughters worked. So they're just getting everybody involved. Um, verse 13, we're finally down to the valley gate, which was where um, Nehemiah had, had gone out at night. Um, now, I'll, it doesn't cover everything in, in the chapter, and it may, be that not the whole, it may be the whole wall wasn't actually torn down. and they may have, He may just be listing the worst parts that, that had to be dealt with. Now, I think he does list every gate. Because every I think every single gate had been burned. The gates would have been made out of wood, very large timbers. But, you know, you burn them, and now there's no problem getting in the city if you're an enemy, because uh, there's no way to shut the door. Um, then they came around um, in verse 15 to uh, the fountain gate, which is down here, the southeast corner. Um, the Pool of Siloam is just inside the fountain gate. And that's actually the end. Uh, when we were studying Hezekiah, you remember he built a tunnel through the rock from the Gihon Spring through the rock to the, to the Siloam Spring. And at the Gihon Spring, that's called the Water Gate. And kind of not hard to figure out why they would call it that. Um, at some point in here, I don't remember the verse, the, the people of Tekoa... Um, did another section. And, and a couple of the... Yeah, verse 27. It says, after them the Tekoites prepared another section. I assume they finished the first one and said, hey, what else you got? Nehemiah says, oh, why don't you go over here? And, and there was another group that did that too. Uh, and you just... You know, you have to respect these people. They didn't just say, we're done, we're going home. No, you know, we're done, what else? <laughs> what a great attitude. And all these people needed was a leader who had faith in God to, to get them together to do the work. And they were ready to follow. Um, and so finally in verse 32, we get all the way back around to the sheep gate and the goldsmiths and the merchants are doing the last section. Well, meanwhile, as they say back at the ranch, <laughs> chapter 4, verse 1, Sanballat, who I think is a Samaritan, and, and then Tobiah, who is an Ammonite, uh, are really annoyed about this. So you got the enemies on the two sides here, and so he he wants to try to discourage them. So that his initial attempt in chapter four is to ridicule them. What are these feeble Jews doing? Are they going to restore from this again? A very common tactic even today. You get someone that you know. You get the congregation wants to do something, and and. You'll find the minority that will just make fun of it. You know, you think you can accomplish anything with that? You know, we've tried that a long time ago. You know, and and it's simply 
the um, attacks from the enemy of God is what it, is what it is. And so Tobias having a lot of fun. Even if I mean, what they're building, even if a fox should jump on it, he would break their stone wall down. <laughs> well, they're having a good time, but God, but Nehemiah's response is in verse four: "Hear, O our God, how we are despised! Return their pro- reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity." And so in verse six, we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Well, half its height is a lot better than what it was. I mean, it, it, it would be much more difficult for an enemy to get across it at that point. Unfortunately, the gates haven't been put up yet, so um, they probably wouldn't go through the wall. They'd go through the gates. But then the next thing was worse. In verse 7, um, they, they're going to come fight against Jerusalem, but they didn't do it secretly enough, and Nehemiah found out about it. So, verse 9, we prayed to our God. Again, Nehemiah is just a man of prayer. It's going to have to come from God, is his view. But he has to do his work, his job too. And so they set up a guard. And, and from then on, this must have slowed the work down some because they had half the people holding the weapons while the other half worked. And they, they slept with their clothes on because they never know what time of day or night they might get attacked. Um, but. That they actually never did get attacked because the enemies heard they were prepared and the enemies didn't. They weren't interested in a, in a fair fight. <laughs> they wanted a surprise one. Um, nevertheless, they, they didn't go back to the old ways. They knew it was, there was a lot of danger. And that takes us to the end of chapter 5. Chapter, chapter 4, I'm sorry. Chapter 4. Now, in chapter 5, they have another problem, but this problem isn't come from their enemies. Where is this problem coming from? People from the Jews, the, some of the Jews are oppressing other Jews. Um, they were the poor. Were it, it was just, it was just a very hard time to be a poor person. I, I perhaps never is an easy time, but um, you've got a, a big emperor who he wants his tax money. He doesn't care how, whether you can afford it or not. He wants his taxes, and so. And then they mention in verse 3 there was a famine going on. And the combination of the two, they were having to borrow money. They were having to mortgage their, their property to borrow money. Who were they borrowing from? Fellow Jews. They were rich Jews. They had the money, so they borrowed from them. Well, And then they're, they're having to pay the interest on the debt. Probably like a lot of people in the mortgage crisis, they couldn't afford anything more than just the interest. And then the... What was he, what was happening even when the debt was getting foreclosed? They were having to, their children were being taken away from them and sold into slavery. What did the law of Moses say about this? Well, go back before that though. I mean, before we get to selling into slavery, there was a problem before that. Don't charge interest. When you make a loan to one of your poor brethren, then don't charge interest. That's from Leviticus chapter 25. Um, and these people had forgotten that. And so they were happy to charge interest, and then they. I'm sure they, their attitude was a lot like the attitudes of the mortgage companies, you know, when the, when the people didn't pay. Well, we're going to have to take your house away. Sorry, you know, you shouldn't ever borrow the money from us. Of course, <laughs> they were the ones that pushed the loan on them. Uh, 
So Nehemiah is really steamed in verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers. And he really preaches and comes down and they feel, they feel pretty guilty. You're charging usury. He says, we, now I assume a number of, of the wealthier Jews had been using the money to buy Jews out of slavery. I mean, Jews were going into slavery to Gentiles and they were, they were buying them out to rescue their, their um, brethren from, from captivity, a, a different kind of captivity than the original one. It was a slavery. And Nehemiah says, but you're the one that's selling them. <laughs> you're selling them so we could buy them? And of course, you know, I'm sure these guys are feeling like, I wish I could crawl underneath a rock at this point. I mean, they, they feel like real jerks. <clears throat> and they promised to pay back all the interest that their brethren had paid them and, and, and to quit selling their brethren into slavery. So his rebuke does the job. <clears throat> and then Nehemiah tells about himself, and, uh, and his example was just exemplary. And I'll just tell you, if Nehemiah hadn't been living like that, he would have had no way he could have rebuked these people. Here he is. He's, a, he's the top dog in Jerusalem. He's the governor. And he can demand all kinds of things as governor. You've got, you've got to support the governor. But he said, neither I nor my kinsmen have eaten the governor's food allowance because he knew where the money was coming from for that food allowance. These poor people that are suffering would have to pay for it. And he says, well, the former governors, they didn't mind you know, taking lots of, of things off the people. But he says in verse 16, I also applied myself to the work on this wall. We did not buy any land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. What he means by not buying land from these poor people that, are, that can't afford to, to eat anymore. That, that's what he's talking about. You, you buy land, you're taking advantage of the poor. And then he tells about how many people he had to feed at his table. You know, He, he shows uh, how every day they had to have one ox and six sheep and a bunch of other things for, for his table, he was having to pay for all this out of his own pocket. Now, I don't know how much money he had. But I will tell you one thing. It's very rare to have someone, no matter how much money he has, to refuse his salary for his state position. <laughs> That's very rare. But that was Nehemiah. He cared about the people. And that kind of an example made a difference when he rebuked these wealthy people that were taking advantage of their power that their money was giving them. And, and so they humbly uh, gave the money back. And, and so the problem was solved. And, and this, pro this problem was interfering with the work because these poor people, how can they be volunteering to build the, the city walls if they can't even afford to put food on the table? And they can't even pay their debts to their own brethren. So it was a serious problem and, it, and they solved it in a godly way. Um, so then, the next problem comes from outside again. Chapter six. We've got uh, Sambal and Tobiah again, and and a third guy, Geshem the Arab, who's added to the list. And um, what do they do this time? Yeah, they go after the top guy. I mean, they they understand before he came, nobody was building the walls. Get rid of him, and the work on the walls will stop, which you probably would have. Um, you just go for the leader. It's kind of like. I remember when um, the king of Syria said, don't fight with anybody except with the king. <laughs> and once they killed the king, the battle was over. Um, so they're going to get rid of Nehemiah. So they want, 
in verse 2, Come, let us meet together at Kephirim in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm him. You know, it wasn't... A, they, he would, they didn't have to worry about what the meeting was going to be about because I don't think he would live to see it. He would, they'd kill him on the way. So he responds, I'm doing great work. I can't come down. <laughs> well, then they, they, they try to blackmail him with this threat. Um, we're going to tell the king that you're planning to rebel and you, you're, you're saying you want to be the king. And he, he responds very calmly. Um, uh, let's see where he says that. You know, such th- thank you. Such things as you were saying have not been done, but you're inventing them in your own mind. <laughs> but, but he again talks to God, but now, oh God, strengthen my hands. God is the one who, who does it for him. And then he, there's this fellow Jew in Jerusalem in verse 10. What does he want Nehemiah to do? Take uh, a shelter in the temple. Take shelter in the temple. They're going to come get you tonight. And why was he telling him that? What? what? Because they would go into the temple after. Yeah, yeah. If, if you were in the temple, you figured you'd be safe. Yeah, but but there was in verse. Um, He'd been bribed. That's what I was after. Yeah, he was telling that because he'd been bribed. But those enemies were bribing Jews in Jerusalem to work on their side, and that's pretty pretty bad when the people, you know, your own kinsmen are behaving that way. Um, but Nehemiah, he he, I don't know that he saw through it at first, but he realized it would be just very unbecoming of someone in his position to act like he was terrified. And what, what would the rest of the people do if they saw their own leader who was so scared he was hiding in the temple? Yeah, it would have been bad. So, the end of chapter 6, the wall was completed in 52 days. <laughs> That's just amazing. Um, just absolutely amazing. And of course, the enemies were very disappointed. Um, <clears throat> but he, he tells a little bit more toward the end of chapter 6 about how there were so many in, Jew, in, in Judea who were allied with these enemies, and they were all with time trying to tell Nehemiah how great Sanballat was and these other people. Um, and of course, Nehemiah was just disgusted <laughs> at the behavior of these people. <clears throat> um, so, the next step, and, and Nehemiah is not done at this point, just because they got the walls done, he's not done. He puts his brother in charge of Jerusalem, and and. He's in charge of opening the gates in the morning, closing in the evening, and, and he arranges the time. Don't open them too early. You know, you could have some. If it's too dark outside, you could have an enemy ready to make an invasion. And they had a problem in verse four. The city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. So Nehemiah's solution. He doesn't give us the full solution here, but um, in verse five, he says God put it into his heart. To, to, to have an enrollment. What he's really after, and he'll tell us later in the book, he's going to take a certain percentage of people from the outlying towns and, and have them move into Jerusalem. They've got to have more people. You can't defend the city when, you have, when it's as poorly populated as it was at this time. But before he can get to that, he discovers the genealogy of those who came up first. And 
to following in the example of the writer of Chronicles and the writer of Ezra, he puts it in here. (laughs) Yeah, just in case you forgot there was already in Ezra chapter 1, we'll put it in again here. Well, these are God's people and and the numbers here are the numbers of God's people. and, and, And Nehemiah wants the people to understand that they're part of a long lineage here and they're, and they're part of a very important story that's going on. And so when He numbers them, it's going to be like they were numbered before. And, and He's going to ask of them some hard things, but they're part of a very great people. It's God's people. Now, in chapter 8, um, they gathered... I, I put up this map here because they gathered at the square which is in front of the water gate. They had the water gate before, but in front of each of these gates, you know, when you come into a town, there'd always be a, a, an open place just as you come in, and it would it, they call it a square, and and they would you, you could meet there. I, I'm sure at different sizes or different gates, but um, this was apparently a big enough square where they could get everybody together, and. As it turns out, this is in the seventh month of the year. And they're later in the chapter, they're going to discover that you're supposed to do something in the seventh month. And what is that? The Feast of Booths. But interesting enough, never mentioned, never mentioned in Nehemiah, but it is in Deuteronomy chapter 10, that in the seventh month of every seventh year, they were to read the law to all the people. And that's what they're doing here. Ezra, um, and which I think this is the first time he's mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. He was, of course, we had him in the book of Ezra, but apparently he's been here all along. Just, just we didn't know we need to mention him. Um, he's a scribe, and so naturally he's the one that's going to do this work. He, he, and some other people are reading the law to the people. Then they're also explaining it to them. Um, the reason they have to explain it down in verse seven is because the law was written in Hebrew. And the people no longer spoke Hebrew. They were speaking Aramaic, a different language. Um, so um, they read it and then they would explain it. And what was the attitude of the people when they were hearing it? They were crying. And Nehemiah says, no, 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 don't cry. This is a day of rejoicing. And um, so then they had the Feast of Booze, which I'm sure was a lot of fun. And it hadn't been celebrated in in decades. Come right on in. (laughs) Oh, okay. Thank you. Then chapter 9 is a continuation of this same event. Um, They... It's, it's still in the seventh month, but now it's on the 24th day of the month. And they meet with fasting and sackcloth. I mean, they're in mourning and they're, they're, they're meeting to confess their sins. And so they read them from the law for the fourth of the day. For the fourth of the day, they, they confess their sins. And then they have this prayer in verse 5. And. This is, of course, the longest prayer recorded in the in the book of Nehemiah. It goes all the way through verse 37. And I've got an outline of the prayer. And, and we can learn a lot from noticing the order that they deal with things in this prayer. And, and we, could, we could, would do very well to think about this ourselves when we talk to God. Think about the Lord's Prayer. 
He begins by saying, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, well, actually, I skipped the first part. Hallowed be Your name. I mean, the, the, now, this is a very short prayer. The, the Lord's Prayer is very short, but the first three phrases are all about God. And here you have a, a longer prayer, and the first 11 verses are all about God. Nothing about, nothing about the people. All about God. Um, it's, a, it's praise. Uh, the first two verses for what God is in Himself and in majesty. Then we go into to God as the founder of the nations as the calling of Abraham. Then to God as the deliverer from Egypt's bondage. Uh, to God who had guided as well as delivered. All about God. Finally, in verse 16, they contrast their own behavior with God. God's grace in contrast with the repeated behavior of the people. And so they go then through the history showing how over and over their ancestors had been blessed by God and then had turned away from God. And just time and time again. And um, what can they say? What excuse can they make for, for returning evil for good? But finally in verse 32 they get to their request. And their request is for God's continued goodness and help. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all our people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. And... In verse 30 says, Behold, we are slaves today, which every citizen of Persia was a slave except for the king. Um, we are slaves in this land. The, its abundant produce is for the kings whom you've set over us because of our sins. They're not, they're not objecting to this. But we're in great distress. And finally, at the end of this prayer, and I, um, I don't know that verse 30 is part of the prayer or right after it, but they decide to make an agreement, a promise to God. And this is great. Um, in the next chapter, it lists all the people that are signing it and it tells what, the, what it's about. The leaders, of course, are the ones who signed it. And starting in verse 28, it tells what, they're, what promises they're making. And of course, the promises they're making are primarily to obey the law of Moses. But they single out the specific commands in the law of Moses that they were most likely to, to break. In fact, that historically they had been breaking. Um, and so in verse 30, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Keep, keep that in mind when you read next week's chapters, unfortunately. And in verse 31, as for the peoples of the land who bring wares or any grain on the Sabbath, we're not going to buy from them. Keep that in mind. It comes up, up later again in the book. And then in verse 2, we place ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. Now that was in addition. That was not in the law of Moses. Uh, but they realized that the, the, the temple needed something and they, they had decided this would be the fairest way to solve the problem. By the time of Jesus, this amount apparently had become half a shekel. Um, and you may recall the time when someone, one of the Pharisees came up to Peter and says, doesn't your master pay the temple tax? And that's when he got the money from the fish's mouth. This was the beginning of that 
um, of that particular uh, tax that they had agreed to, to pay. Um, and, and then they, they cover tithing and, and some other offerings like that uh, and how they're not going to neglect the law of, of our God. It's a great combination we have in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, a combination of God's powerful working and how the people have to work in cooperation with God. And, and, and so time and again they have to get pulled back to God. Uh, but um, in these two books, it's always successful. They always do get pulled back. And, and so the book as, that we're going to cover next week, is, it's going to end on a, on a good note Although it's kind of unfortunate they have to get pulled back one, that one more time. And then when you read the book of Malachi, you find out it didn't last. <laughs> but anyway, any, any last thoughts or questions on the chapter? I appreciate everyone's help this morning.